So if you're just joining us, we're in the middle of a series on the parables of Jesus, which I've come to call Jesus speaking in his outside voice. Parables were put together for those who uh, apparently seem to be outside the inner circle of Jesus' followers. And the parable that we tackle today is provoking, to say the least, the very least, because it's one of his most famous. It's one of his most famous because for some reason, the kingdom of this world has adopted it kind of and made it their own and makes it hard for those of us who hear it to hear it. And so I begin with um, Dr. Amy Levine's uh, introduction to this parable from her book, The The Story Jesus, Stories Jesus Told. It's a fantastic book. This is the way she introduces the parable of the Good Samaritan. Throughout the English-speaking world, the term Good Samaritan is synonymous with charitable do-gooders. Hospitals with the name Samaritan appear throughout the United States, from MedStar Good Samaritan Hospital in Baltimore to Good Samaritan Hospital in Los Angeles. Used to be a Good Samaritan in downtown Phoenix, which is now Banner Samaritan, but it used to be Good Samaritan. The Samaritans is a national charity and the coordinating body of the 201 Samaritans, the 201 Samaritans branches in the United Kingdom, the Republic of Ireland, the Channel Islands, and the Isle of Man. This organization, which also branches into the United States, is dedicated solely to suicide prevention. My favorite, Australia has the GSDS, the Good Samaritan Donkey Sanctuary, which does exactly what the name suggests. The parable of the Good Samaritan is so well known for its message of aiding the stranger that it's become a staple of political discourse. Former President George W. Bush invoked the parable in his first inaugural address. I can pledge our nation, he said, to a goal when we see that wounded traveler on the road to Jericho, we will not pass to the other side. The president's presumption was that the U.S. population, who in the minds of some of our politicians are all Christians, would immediately pick up the reference. Wounded traveler, road to Jericho, we know them, we see them. But she said, I checked with a Jewish friend of mine, a naturalized U.S. citizen who pays more attention to national and local politics than most people I know. She thought the reference might have been to an accident in New York since there was a Jericho on Long Island. And when I noted that the reference was biblical, she wondered if the president then was thinking of Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, who aided the spies in the land by Joshua. See, it's been co-opted by many, but has it been co-opted by us? When we now look at the Good Samaritan, those of us on the inside, those of us inside the circle of disciples of Jesus, when we put ourselves in the Good Samaritan story, you can be honest with you, you can be honest with me, who do we picture ourselves as? Like most people do. We wanna be who? We wanna be the Samaritan. So we picture ourselves as the Good Samaritan. It's us, we're the do-gooders. The wounded then would be whoever it is we help. Sick, poor, wounded, foreign nationals, uh, naturalized citizens, whoever. And that's okay, by the way. That's okay. 
The Bible should always take on new meanings as we encounter, uh, as new readers encounter from new cultural context. We were allowed to take this and contextualize it for us. However, texts also have to have their original context. And Dr. Levine warns us, she says this, but those are not the messages, what we, what we looked at uh, identifying, these are not the messages a first century Jewish audience would have heard. They didn't need a parable to tell them to care for others. They were already commanded to love neighbor as they are themselves. Those Jews in antiquity would not be thinking of governmental resources or foreign aid. The Samaritan would not have reminded them of a secretary of state or a prime minister or even a president. The parable for them would have been about looking after a fellow human being. And by the way, the parable is not an answer to the question, who is my neighbor? It's much more provoking than that. It should provoke our thought because I don't think it's as provoking as we believe it is because we've lost its original context. And we don't relate as the hearers should have related. In other words, those who hear, we don't relate to the outside voice when it comes to this anymore. Would you at least conclude that the parables we've uh, studied uh, up until now have been thought-provoking? Have they made you think? They certainly have me. They make me think. We've studied these, these parables and, and, and we've noted that they were really designed for the outside, for those that we consider on the outside circle. When we were back in Matthew 13 and introduced even the word parable, it, Jesus only spoke to them because they were outside. But what's cool is that this outside voice certainly has seemed to mess with the heads of those inside, hasn't it? those that were sitting inside the circle hearing Jesus tell them, and us who thought we knew what the meaning was. And Jesus has turned a few of them on their heads for me. I don't know about you. And I love when it messes with our heads. Parables show that sometimes a parable's conclusions, though, are too provocative. This particular parable you might find even difficult to listen to. Hard to hear if we put ourselves in the right audience, if we listen with our outside voice. First of all, the parable of the Good Samaritan is not Luke's title. You do not find the Good Samaritan anywhere in the scripture. Who is it that began to call it the parable of the Good Samaritan? Us, the readers of the Bible. We're the ones that call it that. But the title doesn't belong there. It wasn't given that title by the man who wrote it. It's like the, par the parable of the prodigal son. The word prodigal is not even used in the parable. We're the ones that named it that. By the way, we'll get there. It's found only in Luke, which means that we now have a different perspective being brought to us. All of the other parables we've looked at, we've looked at from Matthew mostly and Mark, a couple of others, those were Jewish writers who were understanding it in their way and wanting to reach a Jewish audience. Luke is the first Gentile outsider to take a shot at this. He's the first one who's from Greece. He's a Greek that will take a shot at this, at listening to the outside voice. 
Remember that Luke writes his gospel not claiming any sense of divine inspiration. He does not tell anybody what his inspiration was except this, and it is my favorite form of inspiration. And it should be for all of us amateur theologians and for teachers and and preachers and professors. You can be divinely inspired by doing research because that's what Luke says he did. Taking everything that I've heard into account, he says. Everything I've heard into account, I've examined and I've put it together to be able to tell you, my dear friend, Theophilus. Luke is writing his entire gospel to appeal to one of his friends back in Greece. I love that the man's named Theophilus too, because that means also that it may not be a real man, just a possibility. It may not be a real guy. Luke could be using him as a metaphor because the name Theophilus simply means friend of God. And what he hears and does, he does in a Greek context completely, maybe even further outside the circle than Matthew was. Matthew was outside the circle. He was Jewish, but he had betrayed his Judaism. He had betrayed his Jewishness by becoming a tax collector, but at least he was in the circle at one time. Luke is coming from it from a completely wider circle of Gentiles. He notices some things about Jesus that others don't necessarily perceive. The central characters in, in, the, in, the, in the parables, his parables, uh, he sees them a little different. He, and the debate reflects that, the debate between them. He sees a different Jesus than Matthew does. He hears different things that Jesus says that Matthew does, and he applies them in a completely different manner, re-identifying them in his Gentile context. It's found in chapter 10, Luke chapter 10. And up until now, uh, we're told that the 70 elders are coming back from the disciples' second evangelistic campaign. They're coming back and they're rejoicing over their newfound power. The one thing they can't get over is that they've been able to cast out demons and heal people that are sick. Jesus has to reel them in a little bit saying, that's not what you're supposed to be rejoicing over. Don't rejoice over the power you have over demons. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He's got to reel them back in to show them what's important. What's important is that you're loved and you're saved and God sent you on this mission. So the first thing, and then then in the midst of that, this happens. This guy just shows up in the midst of all of that. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, What must I do to what? Inherit eternal life. It's the question of the Pharisees. Pharisee asked themselves this question every morning when they got up. Every morning they wanted to live their day uh, this way. So the first thing to note, I want you to note, first thing to note, Luke as a Greek somehow has grown a disdain for lawyers. Luke doesn't like lawyers. And his Jesus, the one he's come to research and know and write, Jesus isn't real thrilled about them either. According to Luke 7, verse 30, it says, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected John the Baptist, and Jesus says, so you have rejected God's purposes for yourself. That's the first shot he takes at a lawyer in the Gospel of Luke. 
In Luke eleven forty five, after uh, Jesus insults the Pharisaic hosts at a dinner party by calling them unmarked graves, a lawyer in attendance protests, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. And of course, that was Jesus' intent. Luke's audience would conclude, any of Luke's audience back then, that a lawyer is not going to be the very sympathetic character in this entire narrative. It shows in how he addresses him. The lawyer addresses him as what? What does he call him? Teacher. See, now in our context, teacher should be revered. I want to give credit and props to every teacher that I, can, that I can lay my hands on because they all deserve it, every bit of it, and they don't get enough of it. But back then, not so much when you refer to somebody like Jesus this way. When, the, when a lawyer refers to Jesus this way in Luke, it means he doesn't understand nor does he care who he really is. It lacks respect. In our last parable, Simon called him teacher when Jesus said, Simon, I want to say something to you. And then Simon doubts that he can even be a prophet. When Simon called him teacher, he was saying, I I really don't think you are who you say you are. When Jairus' servants came to tell uh, Jairus that his daughter had died, they say, don't bother the teacher any longer. As if the teacher was bothered to come and raise that little girl from the dead. He was the one that said, I'll go. And by the way, since she's dead, there's nothing the mere teacher can do anything about it. It's a lack of respect. And it's coupled with a refusal. Lack of respect and a refusal to uh, acknowledge who he has already proven to be. This afternoon, if you have a few minutes, look up Luke 12, 13, 18, 18, 19, 39, 20, 21, 20, 28, 21, verse 7. All of these is Luke pointing out when somebody disrespected Jesus by calling him teacher. For Luke, the better title is not teacher, but Lord. Kyrios in Greek, that's the title they should be giving him. Also, it's the reason for the question. What does it say? He stood up to do what? To test Jesus. He stood up to test him. It's another uh, reason why Luke has disdain for this lawyer, why Jesus does. That word, test. The only other time that the word lawyer, the name lawyer, or the title lawyer appears outside the Gospel of Luke is in Matthew 22, 35. And a lawyer stands up, even in Matthew, and says uh, he wants to ask him a question, and it's to test him. Here in Luke 10, just a chapter later, Jesus is going to teach us to pray, to say, lead us not into temptation. That's the same Greek word. You could literally translate it, lead us not unto the test. Don't test us. Do not bring us to the test. Because we know by testing, Jesus, 
By testing Jesus, the lawyer takes the devil's role, for it was Satan who had tested Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus had to shut the devil up by saying, you do not put the Lord thy God to the what? To the test. This is the same word this lawyer is using with Jesus. And then finally, the biggest problem is the question itself. The question itself is arrogant. And it's the wrong question, completely wrong. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The word do here, the lawyer uses uh, tense that suggests a single limited action, the tense that he puts do in. The lawyer's thinking of something to check off his to-do list, recite a prayer, offer a sacrifice, drop off a box of macaroni for a food drive, put a 20 in the collection plate. If he's efficient, he can inherit eternal life before lunch. Dr. Levine says what he should be thinking of is living a life of righteousness. If you're a lawyer, it's not a question that can be answered. It's a trick question. That's what he's testing him with. You can't earn an inheritance, can you? How do you get an inheritance? By being whoever you are to whoever is giving it, right? If my dad wants to give an inheritance to his sons, congratulations, Greg, you're my son. Done. All the scholars... I want to set this straight. We've been doing it in Galatians, but I want to set this straight. All the scholars have come to a consensus that most devout first century Jews, when I say devout, they were believers, still believers in the God of all of Israel and still believers in the covenant that Abraham called them into. All the scholars have come to the conclusion that those already believed, they already believed in a resurrection to eternal life. That's why I keep telling people is that the Jews never, ever taught that you could be saved by keeping the law. They already believed they were saved. Why? Because their covenant with Abraham said so. You want proof? You want biblical proof? Jesus asked Martha after Lazarus had died, do you believe your brother will live again? What was her answer? I believe that he will be raised up in the resurrection on the last day. Notice he didn't say because they believed in you. They didn't say because we, we started following you and we believed in you. When they started following Jesus, they already believed they had eternal life. They followed Jesus because, they showed, because Jesus showed them how to live this eternal life out in this temporary life. By the way, Torah doesn't talk about, it talks very, very little about eternal life, but it has a whole lot to say about daily life. Christianity has made up this myth, has created this straw man in order to be able to argue, in order to be able to practice whatever institutionalized form of anti-Semitism, in other words, to bring the Jews down to a particular level. They're the ones that invented, that, they, that Jews believed that they keep the law and they saved their life. That's a Christian invention. Judaism never taught that you could be saved by keeping the law. They already believed they had eternal life 
This question is about how to live out that inheritance now. And Torah shows you how to do it from day to day. Eternal life was part of the covenant and they believed in the covenant. If you don't believe me, look up the first line of the Abrahamic covenant. You and your seed shall remain forever. Go out and look into the the stars of the heaven. If you can count them, that's your descendants. Torah was about showing people the love of God, the one who gave them the covenant. In other words, we can tell people that that we are loved by God, but you really want to tell people, God says, you got to show them. I showed you, now I want you to show your neighbor. Love God, love neighbor as self. The lawyers reduced the covenant to performance, performance that he can perform something that he can do. And by the way, it's limited. What he's really asking is, what is the bare minimum I can do and get away with whatever I want? So Jesus says, what's written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've given the right answer, Do this, and you will what? And you'll live. But what's interesting is he says, do this, and you will live. Jesus isn't referring to eternal life. Do this, and you will live from day to day as somebody who knows they have eternal life. See, because he turns the question on the lawyer. Remember, the lawyer's do was a single act, one thing that I could do, one thing that I could, get, that I could perform. Jesus' do is another uh, status. It's another uh, case, if you will, that he gives it. It's an imperative. It's ongoing. It's continuing. Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 30 make, make the point, do this and live. The point is, live now. You don't have to be focused on eternal life. You know why? Because as a member of the covenant, you've already got it. But live now, live ongoing. In what Ed read, uh, read to us earlier, Jesus invited the ruler to sell all he had, pointing out to him what he lacked, because he asked, what is it that I lack? Jesus pointed it out to him and then said, come and what? Follow me. Ongoing. Live life daily. The problem was, was that he was following the letter of the law, but he had developed no compassion or mercy for the poor. So Jesus said, let's take care of that and then you come and follow me. Remember when we, when we did this a, a, a few months ago, a lot of us walk away from this thinking that the rich young ruler is gonna be lost because he didn't sell all he had. No, he's gonna be lost because he walked away from the only one that could give him life. Do you think for one minute, if he would have stayed there, looked at Jesus and said, you know what, I can't. I just cannot sell everything that I have. But can I still walk with you? You think Jesus would have told him no? His only shot to develop mercy would be to continue to walk with Jesus. And that's what Jesus is telling this lawyer today. You can't do anything to earn an inheritance. 
So live for today as if somebody who knows they've got an inheritance of eternal life through a resurrection. Love God, love your neighbor. It's about life now. It's not about eternal life. Really, it's about showing everyone out there who may not have eternal life what it looks like to have eternal life. Walking and talking, ongoing. It's not, let me wake up and try to do as many good things as I can and then go back to God at the end of the day for a report. No, it's a continual walk and talk. Salvation is lived every moment. Struggles or victory, failures or successes, all are within a walk. Jesus doesn't care if we failed or we succeeded. He just wants us to walk with us. He told us what to do when we fail, when we're with him. Confess your sins. And he who is faithful and true will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, which means tomorrow we get to go again. He's even with us when we succeed. Even when we we let the power go to our head, he wheels it in and reminds us, hey, just rejoice that your name is in heaven. This fact that you've got power over demons right now, let's, let's, let's put that on the back burner. Let you and me talk about this. I love what Dr. Levine says here. At this point, right here, at this point, the lawyer, if he were wise, would have thanked Jesus and went on and gone on to show his love. But he's a lawyer in Luke's gospel. So we know that a humble, compassionate response is unlikely. Instead, he proves his malevolent intent even more by posing another even more inappropriate question. And we all know what that is, right? Wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, what? And who is my neighbor? Jesus doesn't hate this question, I don't think, but he does have serious problem with the motivation for asking it. To justify himself, to make himself look right. That's what he wants to do. At this moment right now, he wants to look right in front of everybody listening and before God, and they still want to think that he's a righteous, holy man because he knows his Bible. Jesus has a problem with this. A little later in Luke 16, um, there's a group of uh, Pharisees and, and a group of lawyers who will begin to heckle him because he just told them. He just told them that you can, uh, you know, uh, what was it? Um, uh, to give away everything that you have. He just told them about what to do, about what to, to give and what to give away. They begin to heckle him about it because Luke says they were lovers of money. So Jesus says to them, you are those who justify yourselves. In other words, you're the ones that want to look right in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts for what is prized by human beings is a what? An abomination to the sight of God. I don't think he minds the question, but he can't stomach the motive for the question. And by the way, if all of a sudden you find yourself on the other end of Jesus beginning a parable, we're in trouble, aren't we? Because as soon as the lawyer did that, Jesus says, all right, I got something for you. And now we're at our parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to where? 
to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him, what? Leaving him dead? Leaving him half dead. The man's a John Doe. We don't know who he is. We don't know what he does. We don't know how he's dressed because he's been beaten and stripped. So we don't even know what clothes he was wearing. We have no idea, no description of him whatsoever. It could be anyone and it could be everyone. And that's Jesus' intent. He wants us to know this could be who? It could be you. Because chances are, even with that in that audience, the Jericho Road was so dangerous, chances are that even in that audience that he's talking to, there were people there who probably had been mugged at one time or another. This doesn't have anything to do with the victim. The victim cannot be blamed for anything. He is no one and he is everyone. And then of course, what are we told? By chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Why? We don't know. We don't even know why they're introduced. Really. They're seen as the holiest men of all of Israel. And they're so holy that most uh, people, especially Christian scholars, especially pastors and teachers, that for the ages, we've tried to almost defend them for passing by. We've tried to come up with reasons why they passed him by. The most popular is, I don't know if you've heard this, is that they were afraid they would become unclean if they came in contact with them. We, we want them, we want an excuse for them to be able to, to pass the guy up that we, when, we even would uh, justify it for them. They would be unclean. Well, guess what? The only way you could become unclean from somebody is if they were dead. The only way that he, would, that he the man that was beaten, would have defiled them was because they were dead. And some people say, well, they, they were also trying to stay clean so they could go perform their duties. Hey, They're not going to the temple. They're not going to Jerusalem. They're coming from Jerusalem. It can't be that. The guy's not dead, which means he can't render them unclean. And number two, even if they are unclean, they're going to Jericho. It doesn't matter. So why these two guys? It's interesting. Dr. Levine says this. She goes, maybe the two were put there in order to introduce the third. See, because what's happened is, is that those, those hearers, those first century Jewish listeners, they've heard priest, they've heard Levite, and they've already in their heads know who's next. They've already come up with triplicate. It's the rule of three in literature. And you may not realize it, but we are very, very used to the rule of three in literature. You use the first two to set up the third. So for the, first, for the Good Samaritan, the rule works even better. For in its usual function, the first two figures fail and the third will succeed. Can you think of an example? I can think of a very non-kosher example, the three little pigs. The first two, did they succeed? No, they failed. Straw, sticks, bricks. The third one succeeds. See, it sets it up. It sets up the third one. Equally non-kosher, she says, the suitors for Portia's hand in Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. Name two, and the third comes automatically. For a more modern analogy to say in a church context, if I said father, son, what would you say? Holy Spirit. 
it automatically comes. And I love that she adds, for a less theological but much more kosher application is Larry, Moe, and Curly. The reason why that's more kosher than the three little pigs is that the three stooges were all Jewish. See, already in the listener's mind, they've set up who the next guy has to be. If the priest failed and the Levite failed, then it's a normal, everyday Israeli citizen who's next. And they've already made it up in their heads. They've already said, this normal uh, Israeli guy, he's gonna be the one. But Jesus then blows the whole thing up. He lets them anticipate that that's who it's gonna be, and he blows it completely out of the water when he says, but a what? A Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with what? He was moved with pity. A Samaritan? That blows the whole thing up. She adds this, she goes, instead of the anticipated Israeli citizen, the person who stops to help is a Samaritan. In modern terms, this would be like going from Larry and Mo to Osama bin Laden. That's how shocking this is. And what did he do? He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. He put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I'll repay you whatever more you spend. See, Jews and Samaritans hated each other with a hatred that you and I, maybe, maybe not, can understand. Why? What happened? I'll try to give a short primer of the history of Samaria and Judea, okay, and why we end up this, with this hatred by the time that this is written. When John begins the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, he tells us that it takes place in the Samaritan city of Sychar. The woman's well is whose well? It's Jacob's well. Jacob, whose name is also Israel. This was where he was living before he took off for Egypt. The well is 250 feet from ancient Shechem. Shechem sits between two mountains, Gerizim and Ebal. Shechem was the most important place of all ancient worship in those days. It was the first place that Abraham was led, uh, 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 it was led to by God in Genesis 12. Number two, it was the place where Jacob returns from Palestine to Mesopotamia, as told in Genesis 33. Israel's first meeting place for worship in the land of Canaan takes place right in between those two mountains in Shechem. Deuteronomy 11, 27, and Joshua 8. According to Deuteronomy, Mount Gerizim becomes the Mount of Blessing, the mount that they are at the foot of right now, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land that you are entering to occupy, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. They had a strong reason, the Samaritans did, to believe that their mountain was a holy mountain. Moses just said so. We also remember that Shechem was the place that Joseph was buried after the Exodus, according to Joshua 24. Joshua 18 says the sanctuary was first set up at Shiloh, a Samaritan city. 
Just a note, archaeology has found an altar that predates the Exodus, and it's dedicated, it says, to the Lord of the Covenant. What that means is that quite possibly, Jacob left many worshipers of God behind when he moved to Egypt. That means somebody has been there ever since Jacob. They have an ancient claim. Jerusalem does not become the center of Israelite worship until 1000 BC, a thousand years after this. By that time, Shechem was, had been the primary center for a thousand years themselves. Why was it so easy for the northern tribes of Israel to reject worship at Jerusalem after the time of Solomon? Because they already had their tradition. They already had their place. They had their biblical claim. According to 2 Kings 17, the Assyrians took Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity in 740 BCE. The Assyrian king brings people from other nations and puts them in the cities of Samaria. See, these kings, Nebuchadnezzar and these Assyrian kings that take the uh, Israelites into captivity, they don't want the land to go fallow. They want to still make money off it. They want it to be productive. So they bring other people in and they work the fields and, 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 they, and they produce goods all so they can continue to uh, contribute to the Assyrian empire. The same thing happened in Babylon. So when he did that, when he took the others and he put them in Samaria, he then takes a priest who had been taken captive and he sends them back to Bethel to teach all of them to worship God. The problem is, is that the people also were allowed to worship the God of their native lands, so they end up worshiping both. 2 Kings 17, 41 says, these nations worship the Lord, but also serve their carved images. To this day, their children and their children's children continue to do as their ancestors did. There you go, that's it, right there. That's why Samaritans should be hated. Because they worship God and they worship their other gods. That's what Judea says. But you know what Judea forgot? is that 130 years later, Babylon would take them into captivity. And according to Isaiah, according to Amos, and according to uh, Hosea, it was for the very same reasons. They were worshiping God and they were worshiping other gods. See, but not all of them go to Babylon. Some stay behind. The ones that do go to Babylon, they're reformed under the teachings of Daniel and Ezekiel and Ezra. So when they returned, they treated the ones that were still there like they were the foreigners. The Samaritans are stunned by this because they felt they reflected the true faith of their fathers. So after 100 years, they just gave up, built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. Now you may understand a little bit more the argument between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. You Jews say you should be, we should be worshiping on a mountain in Jerusalem. We Samaritans say we should be worshiping on this mountain. After 200 years, that temple was destroyed by a Jewish king named John Hyrcanus. And the two groups pretty much never got back together again. They've hated each other ever since. By Jesus' day, Jews felt that Samaritans defiled everything they touched. It'd be remarkable for a Jew to even speak to a Samaritan which makes this conversation Jesus has with this woman even more remarkable. 
They're cousins, really. Same God. Just divided over things like points of doctrine as to where to worship and what mountain. As to who are the biggest idolaters. Me or you. I may not be perfect, but I'm so much better than that Samaritan over there. Judeans looked down on them because they were of mixed race and ancestry. I have to tell you, by the first century, most Judeans didn't know their race or ancestry either because of the captivity and everything else that had happened 400 years earlier. So the fact that the Samaritan becomes the righteous actor in this parable makes it scream so loud in the outside voice that the lawyer on the inside, this biblical interpreter, this holy man that all Israel depends on to hear the word of God, he can't bear it, he can't hear it. Jesus asked him, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer says, the one who do what? The one who showed him mercy, which by the way is the right answer, isn't it? Which one's really is your neighbor? You got two neighbors, one persecutes and betrays you, the other one takes care of you, which one is your neighbor? The one who shows you mercy, but he can't say the word Samaritan. All he can do is admit that the Samaritan's actions made him a neighbor. He knows the law. And he does not fail to recognize that Torah describes a neighbor as the one who treats somebody like a neighbor. Hence, this Samaritan is the neighbor. And the lawyer knows at that moment, he realizes that he's never ever viewed a Samaritan as a neighbor. Jesus points out, guys, look, it doesn't matter if someone's religion, their race, their creed, their national status, the color of their skin, how they identify. Nobody is outside Torah's definition of a neighbor. Self-righteous always seem to forget that. Ezekiel tried to tell Judea, your elder sister is Samaria who lived with her daughters to the north of you and your younger sister is who lived to the south of you, Sodom and her daughters. You not only followed their ways and acted according to their abominations, within a very little time, you were more corrupt than all of them in your ways. So, we're so quick to put ourselves where we want in the parable. But is the parable, is Jesus and the outside voice allowing us to do that? We can overlook the reason was the church of the day looked down on the Samaritan for, for you know, whatever reasons. We can try to overlook that. The reason why the Samaritan was so looked down upon, it was his race, it was his religious practice. He was disdained, he was marginalized. God hates you for who you are, so can I. By the way, we don't think about it much, but the fact that the church has even labeled it the, the good Samaritan, as if there's only what? As if there's only one. Did you ever notice there's no good Catholic, good Adventist, good Baptist, or good Presbyterian hospital? Right? 
Even the title in it doesn't take into consideration what Jesus is trying to get across to us about how we feel about the Samaritan. By the way, if we were to say that about anything else, about a race, uh, uh, about a creed, about a tribe, about anybody else, it would be disrespectful because they're still here. Did you know that Samaritans still live on the earth? And guess where they live? Still around Mount Gerizim. To ask who is my neighbor is the lawyer's way of asking, who's not my neighbor? Who does not deserve my love? Whose lack of food or shelter can I ignore? Whom can I hate? The answer Jesus gives is who? No one. Everyone deserves that love. Local, alien, Jew, Gentile, terrorist, rapist. Again, the outside voice. How far does it really go? Is it too loud for you to hear today? It's awfully loud for me. I almost can't hear it. Even war. We think that sometimes all of this love your neighbor, love your enemy, you know, and all of that is suspended because of war. Do you know the origin of this story? In 2 Chronicles 28, It says the people of Israel took captive 100,000 of their kin, Judah's kin, women, sons, daughters, and they took much booty from them and they brought them into Samaria. King Pekah of Israel has said that in one day he killed 128,000 Judeans. All because of Judea's sin had risen up. And because about five years earlier, Judea Judea had killed about a quarter of a million Samaritans. So this was them getting back. He teams up with the nation of Aram, the Aramites, and they get together and they kill that many Judean soldiers. And they're carrying back 200,000 of their women, sons, and daughters and all of the spoils of war and they're bringing it to Samaria. A prophet named Oded steps in and says, what are you guys doing? He says, look, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, was angry with Judah. That's why they were given into your hand. But you've killed them in a rage that has now reached heaven. And how do they know that it's reached heaven? Is God says, because I'm his prophet and he just rang my bell. You intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female as your slaves, but what have you except sins against the Lord your God? Who do you think you are? Hear me, he says. Send them back. Send back the captives from whom you've taken your kindred. And he reminds them now twice as to who those people really are. They're what? They're your family. They're your cousins. On top of that, the chiefs of this village in Samaria that they're headed to, the chiefs come walking out. There's about six of them. They come walking out. They look at the entire army and all of that and said, you can't bring them here. Nope, you can't bring them here. The prophet's right. We're not even let you. If you don't listen to the prophet, you're gonna have to move on. You can't bring them here. For our guilt is already great and we don't want any more of God's wrath against us. 
So the warriors left the captives right there at the foot of this village. They leave them. Then listen to this. Then those who were mentioned by name, these six or seven leaders that stepped out, those who were mentioned by name got up, took the captives, and with the booty they clothed all that were naked among them. They clothed them and gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink, anointed them, and carried all the feeble on their own donkeys, and they brought them to their kindred where? At Jericho, the city of palm trees. And when they did that, they returned to Samaria. You think Jesus just made the Samaritan up out of nowhere? Look what they did. The Samaritan took the man, he anointed him and cleansed his wounds, gave him food and drink, put him on his own donkey and takes him to the inn. These guys did the exact same thing with all of the wounded, with all of the captive of Judah. Jesus is talking to a Judean audience who thinks that the Samaritans are are unclean because they are such great sinners and they've forgotten this story even that is in their own history. See, the Loma Linda statue, and and I I didn't share with you, some of you will recognize, the, the picture that I have, the statue of the Good Samaritan, is in front of the Loma Linda School of Medicine. They commissioned, they commissioned an artist to do this because they wanted to send a message to every student and every professor and every doctor who was gonna come from this. The depiction is right. It's the graduate professor, the doctor, the one wearing that hood, okay? He's the priest or the Levite. They're not the Samaritan. They're the ones passing by the beaten man. Our eminent college is reminding all Adventists of the danger of living the minimum standards of law and doctrine when there are sick people to be healed. And by the way, he gives the murdered man an identity too. Look real close at the face of the beaten man. Not murdered, but beaten. Who is it? It's Jesus the son of man. If you do these to the least of these, you've done it to me. And by the way, it was commissioned back in the 70s after supposedly civil rights movement had taken place. It does not pass me by that the Samaritan seems to be of African descent. Sometimes the outside voice is almost unhearable. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Thank you all for holding on here with me.